Thank you all for coming. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, my name is Carlos Ramos Mrzovsky. Uh, as chairman of a Princeton Committee Against Terrorism, or otherwise known as PCAT, on so many of our signs and posters, let me thank you all for being here this evening. We're delighted at the unexpectedly huge turnout, and we think it's going to make this a great event, and we're so happy to see so many faces here tonight. So thank you all for being here. Uh, while on the subject of thanks, let me also take a moment to thank two members of the Princeton Committee Against Terrorism and two dear friends who have helped make this event possible tonight. Those would be Jennifer Carter, my lovely co-chair at PCAT, and Eric Wang, our tireless director of communications. Thank you, guys. Without you, this would not have been possible. I'd also like to thank many, many, many of our members who have worked hard and who you may see around our event today wearing these red, white, and blue buttons who have similarly been invaluable and helped put this event together, whether it was in logistics, in assisting public safety, or in helping you to your seats. So thank you to them also. I also want to acknowledge the Department of Politics for their generous support of this event. Our committee was founded to educate students about the new dangers facing our nation and to promote resolute support for the war on terror that America has now embarked upon. Many Princetonians grieved on September 11th, but through PCAT, we seek to channel that pain into a productive and proactive force. In one short month, we've had the privilege to see students and faculty from across the country and literally across the world come together in support of American freedom and values and in defiance of those who would have us live in fear. I hope you will take the time to learn more about the committee's activities at our website, httppcat.princeton.edu. Our educational campaign so far has taken many forms. Today we are deeply honored by a visit from Ambassador Ravan Farhadi, the permanent representative of the Islamic State of Afghanistan to the United Nations. I'm confident that the Ambassador's talk will be informative, challenging, and topical. I'm similarly confident that the Ambassador will be received with Princeton's usual respect and courtesy. Before hearing from our guest, I'm pleased to yield the floor to another experienced diplomat and one of Princeton's most distinguished faculty members, Professor Wolfgang Densbeck-Gruber of the Woodrow Wilson School. Professor Densbeck-Gruber. Thank you. And uh, let me first start with, um, besides what really excellence that Ravi que vous êtes ici, with uh, thanking wholeheartedly the uh, Princeton Committee Against Terrorism and uh, for undertaking uh, this uh, initiative and trying to provide us all not just with the opportunity to hear an insight from one of those who can currently be here on this side of the Atlantic and speak openly, but also to do so as the representatives of the emerging, what we love to call, leadership generation. And we are proud of you, as we all are proud of our own Princeton students, that uh, you undertake these initiatives. Before I venture to introduce Dr. Fahadi and shed light on his distinguished career, both in government, diplomacy, and academia, I thought it may be appropriate to raise a couple of issues concerning his native country. 
As most of you may know, Afghanistan has been a thoroughfare of Central Asia, not just for one, five, twenty, or hundred years, but for hundreds of years. You could not reach any major parts, either in East or in West or in South Central Asia, but then also in East and West parts of Central Asia without crossing through Afghanistan. Many of you may have heard the term Silk Road. Well, it so happened that the Silk Road crossed Afghanistan for many, many centuries. Many of you may have heard issues like Kandahar or issues like the Pashtuns or passes or very rugged terrain. It so happens that territory normally has strong ramifications on the formation of the population, on the cohesion of the population. Afghanistan is known for the pride and strength of its various clans, of its various groups, which use this parts for their own advantage. But Afghanistan is also known for a population who had to suffer. It is just 20 years ago, ladies and gentlemen, that we had 1981. Many of you may perhaps recall that this was a time when another major power tried to cut through from the north to the south and to obtain perhaps a direct way to the Arabian Sea. That was the Soviet Union. Afghanistan was occupied by the Soviet Union, although the beginning of its occupation fell flat in American media because our attention was at that time on nothing else but on Tehran, where the American embassy in Tehran was occupied. That so happened in 79. The occupation of Afghanistan by Soviet armed forces has caused roughly 15,000 dead and zillions of casualties on the side of the Soviet armed forces. Nobody has any stake this, about the civilian casualties in Afghanistan itself. But the occupation of Afghanistan, which was abandoned, and then it's the retirement of Soviet armed forces back north, introduced basically the end of the Cold War, this occupation experience has beset the Soviet armed forces with a dilemma from which the forces still suffer today. The major drug problem armed forces have ever experienced. The Afghan clans, the Afghan fighters, are not only a proud, but they are also very able people. And they may unify in whatever their objective is as a common objective for the country as such, but to do so with pride and not necessarily amitié towards all the others. It, I say this because I can only assume the challenges which Dr. Fahadi must face in trying to be able 
to protect a unified opinion of the Islamic State of Afghanistan at the United Nations, because I'm sure there are various fractions who would like to hear their opinion presented by Ambassador Fahadi. And that is his job. He has been the permanent representative of, um, and ambassador of the Islamic State of Afghanistan to the United Nations in New York since 1993. I assume, Your Excellency, you're one of the longest-serving ambassadors there by now. And he has done so after he had a distinguished career in academia, which he undertook by force majeure, meaning he quit the diplomatic service once Kabul became a communist outpost, namely in 78. After 1978, he served at, um, as an associate professor at the University of Sorbonne and at the University of California, and finally at a professor at the Institute of Islamic Thought and Civilization at Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. Dr. Faradi had a very distinguished training and education at the Université de Sorbonne à Paris, and he was also trained at the École des Autodutes Internationales à Paris. So he had a very strong Francophonian um, impact in his education. Nevertheless, he was in his second post, the Councillor of the Afghanistan Embassy in Washington, D.C., and obviously, eventually, the ambassador to Paris in, 19, in the 1970s. I assume, Your Excellency, that with your background, both in terms of multi-ethnic, multicultural, and multilinguistic exposure, you are uniquely positioned to represent, at least in thought, a country to the global organization where this country may be one of those key points in the development of the emerging century. And I'm particularly proud that we can welcome you to the university whose former president was once Woodrow Wilson on the very day when this organization at which you present your country has received its Nobel Peace Prize. Sir, the floor is yours. Mr. Kofi Annan uh, has received uh, today, about 4 o'clock, a call uh, from uh, Norway, where, where he was. Uh, he knew, he learned that the United Nations and also himself uh, have been awarded uh, a Nobel Prize. And this was, I mean, all, all the day, during the day, everybody was uh, busy with that, and, but of, of course, we have our current problems 
uh, in the United Nations and uh, the Security Council uh, has was busy with many other, but everybody was also very proud of the Secretary General. Uh, he has been uh, easily elected for a second term, uh, in spite of the fact that it is the turn of Asian continent to to have somebody in the uh, as post of Secretary General, but this may happen when he finishes his term, which is beginning uh, uh, shortly. Now, uh, I'm, first I would like to, to present my thanks uh, about uh, what uh, uh, Professor Wolfgang uh, Danspeck Gruber was so kind to me by presenting me and by I hope I will not disappoint you, but uh, um, I, I, uh, uh, I promise to you that I'll speak just uh, very frankly and uh, will give you information uh, as I have been, I have used uh, when I was a professor uh, in Berkeley and in Kuala Lumpur and also in, uh, in Sorbonne, uh, but uh, but the matter was much different. The, what was I was teaching was the history of Persian literature. So, uh, but still, uh, I was asked many times to speak about international events. So. Uh, I, I, I would like also to thank uh, Mr. Ramos Morozovsky, who was so active and so kind to me by checking with me many things, including the fact that it's much better to come here by train than by driving and by passing the tunnel. So I was I'm very thankful to him, and he um, welcomed me in the... Uh, station, and uh, I, I, I am very thankful to him. Uh, now, uh, this historic place, this is, I know how much this is historic, this university, and uh, I'm conscious of this, this and um, uh, there are some uh, old uh, figures who were here. Um, Mr. Wilbur was, I, I hope he's still living, he's, uh, he was a, a great scholar, uh, specialist of Afghanistan, and of course also um, the there is uh, there are others who I uh, I I can I can I can uh, uh, remember my uh, remember their names, but we have no time to speak about them. And uh, there then uh, some ten years ago there was an Afghan uh, who was also here coming from Australia. Uh, this was Mr. Cycle. And he was, uh, uh, he was uh, now still he's, he's active and he's uh, becoming the director of the Institute of Islamic and Middle Eastern Studies. So uh, it is very interesting that Afghanistan, uh, you see, is the meeting point of it, Afghanistan is the meeting point 
of three regions of Asia. It is, of course, uh, Central Asia, because the north of Afghanistan uh, uh, and the Oxus River, which is called Amudarya, Amu, it is uh, typical uh, Central Asia. But in fact, Afghanistan is also a country of Middle East, because, and this is the end of Middle East, uh, because Iran is Middle East, and with Iranians we share uh, a language, Persian, and uh, in spite of the fact that the Afghans are in great majority, 82% Sunni, while the Iranians are Shia, and uh, majority Shia, but they have also a good percentage of Sunni in Iran. Uh, in Afghanistan, there are many, uh, I mean, non-Aryan people, because there are the Pashtuns, the Tajiks are Aryan people, uh, and also people living around Herat uh, and uh, southwest of Afghanistan. But in the north, there are other uh, ethnic groups. These are the Uzbeks, which is this is Eastern Turkic, and also Turkmens. Uh, Turkmens also they are belong to Turkic uh, family. And then on the, the the Central Asian countries who are in the north of Afghanistan. Uh, they are the Tajikistan, who where Tajiks are living. The number of Tajiks in Tajikistan is less than the number of Tajiks in Afghanistan. And uh, in the other case, Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan, the majority is in the north, and we have uh, minorities in our country. But no ethnic group in Afghanistan. No ethnic group has an absolute majority. And this is very important as far as the post-Taliban uh, regime concerns. Because all the ethnic groups of Afghanistan, including the Pashtuns, which are called the Patans in Pakistan, and including the Tajiks, they are, each of them, about a third. I mean, the Tajiks a little less, the Pashtuns a little more, but they are about the third of the population. And uh, the, a good part of Afghans are other minorities. So it is a country of minorities. But it is very interesting that they have been always linked to each other and where they have been vis-a-vis -vis all foreigners who tried to invade Afghanistan. This was the case of British. This was the case of also of the 
Soviets, mainly Russians, who invaded Afghanistan uh, 79 to 89. And this, is, uh, this shows that these different ethnic groups, they have so much, they have so much relations with each other. And of, of course, there are also intermarriages also happening. And they are very much allied when there is danger of foreign invasion or foreign, foreign influence. And this is, I'll explain to you why the Taliban did not succeed in Afghanistan. And they will not succeed. Let me tell you that uh, after the end of communism in Afghanistan, and this was in 1992, we had the governments of Mujahideen who came to Afghanistan, and these were, they had uh, Islamic trends. But from that time, there was something very dangerous happening in Afghanistan. In Pakistan, which is the neighboring country, there is an institution which is called ISI, Inter-Service Intelligence. And this is the military intelligence of Pakistan, which is more much more powerful than the government and which has its own institute, it's, it's by itself it, it is so powerful and it is not accountable to any parliament or anything and the Americans who helped the Afghans in their fighting against Soviet Union they completely abandoned Afghanistan and unfortunately trans transferred Afghanistan to the hands of this institution which is ISI, Pakistani ISI and left it as, as such. The Pakistani ISI had its own plan. The idea was for Pakistan, who is facing India in the east and relations may not be good all the time, especially with the problem of Kashmir this Pakistan taught the, I mean the, 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 the generals of Pakistan the, the military junta taught that it is much better to have in Afghanistan a subservient regime in Afghanistan in order the subservient regime serves Pakistan as a strategic depth strategic depth while facing India and therefore they wanted to establish in Afghanistan a subservient regime. This is why for, for from 90, 
two up to for four years, they used their own man, who was Mr. Hikmatyar, who was an Afghan leader, but who was linked to the ISI and the Pakistani ISI, and he was bombing Kabul, and uh, some 40,000 people lost their lives because the rockets were coming all uh, every day, uh, some years, uh, in, in the town of Kabul. And uh, th this was the reason that... But he did, he did not succeed because there was a resistance. There was a resistance against him uh, f coming from uh, many ethnic groups of Afghanistan, including Pashtuns. But in a later stage, Pakistan ISI found that he did not succeed, so therefore they invented the Taliban. So I would like you to be clear for you that the Taliban did not, did I say not, participate in the fighting against the Soviets. The Red Army was fighting with the Mujahideen who was, and the Taliban, they were another generation of Pakistanis and Afghans. And these were young people who were living in the refugee camps of the Afghans and also those who were studying in the madrasa. Madrasa is the religious school in Pakistan. I mean, nor, northern, northern frontier province, this is next to Afghanistan. So they were, so an army was uh, fighting people, were sent to Afghanistan. First, they, so they, in the uh, end of 94, beginning of uh, 95, they conquered Kandahar in the south, then the Herat, in the west of Afghanistan, and in 96 September, they invaded the capital Kabul. But this was done with complete assistance and help of Pakistani ISI. So the government of the Mujahideen was not defeated by the Taliban, by, but by the ISI, Pakistani ISI, who was recruiting the Taliban, uh, organizing and sending them to Afghanistan. This is what, how it happened. And then uh, they continued this and uh, to the north, and to the, they went to, uh, toward the north for some time, uh, Mazar Sharif in the north was the capital of Afghanistan, of the legal government of Afghanistan. Then, in a later stage, uh, Mazar Sharif was conquered by the Taliban and they invaded the town and then they, they had to leave, but they came back in, a, uh, and, uh, in 88. And this is how only one part of Afghanistan on northeast was left to 
the Islamic State of Afghanistan. And in the United Nations, uh, all efforts were deployed by the Pakistani delegates and also by uh, sometime with, I mean, I'll speak later, I'll speak very soon about the attitude of United States. But uh, in spite of the efforts of the uh, if the efforts deployed by Pakistan, the Taliban were never accepted in the United Nations. Never. Because the, there is in a credentials committee and the credentials given by the Taliban were not accepted every year. By, so therefore, this is how our delegation maintained itself in the United Nations. And all the embassies of Afghanistan in Paris or London, Rome or um, uh, Vienna uh, and Moscow, uh, also they are not linked to the Taliban. They, they were never linked to the Taliban. Only three countries recognized the Taliban at the outset. Naturally, Pakistan, because Pakistan was the creator of the Taliban, and also Saudi Arabia, because Saudi Arabia was providing financial help to the ISI for their activities in Afghanistan. This, these, these were years 96, 97, 98. And the United States had a sympathy for the Taliban because they were thinking the CIA and the Pentagon, they were thinking that everything done by Pakistan is okay. And this was wrong. This was wrong. Because the Taliban finally gave shelter to Osama bin Laden. There was also a company which is called Unocal, which is an American company, very powerful in those regions, who was thinking to have a pipeline for the natural gas of Turkmenistan to be taken to Pakistan. And they, and also it seems that UNOCAL we have heard was giving half a, half a billion each six months to the Taliban. Of course, this it did not realize because Afghanistan, there was a war of resistance in Afghanistan. And because of this resistance, Afghanistan was never a peaceful country uh, in order the the uh, this natural gas uh, to be 
to be trans transit of this natural gas to take place and the pipeline to be constructed. So this is the... But in one case, uh, this was the time, 96, when they invaded Kabul. This was the time when President Clinton was very busy with his re-election, and he was re-elected. But in a time, there was a tendency uh, to recognize the United States, to recognize the Taliban as the government of Afghanistan, and also the embassy of United States in Pakistan had received instruction to send a delegation to Kabul for the reopening of the embassy. But help came to our side from very strange uh, source and this was the feminist majority of United States. Because the Taliban, they had closed all the girls' school and have forbidden completely the women's education, the girls' education. Because the Taliban, they had the, their way of thinking was in the Middle Ages. And therefore, in the last moment, the administration of Mr. Clinton found that they will, they will lose a, a, the, the women's vote in the re-election. And therefore, nothing was done. And this is, we have heard it later from uh, our close friends, and they told us the story. So because of the feminist majority in United States, uh, it was found that better not to recognize the Taliban. Just for the right of women, rights of women. And uh, therefore, uh, Mr. Clinton uh, did not recognize the Taliban, and, but the, there was sympathy, and the still uh, UNOCAL was helping the Taliban. When UNOCAL stopped, then the Taliban, they found another source of revenue in opium, which is the source of heroin. And the traffic of opium and heroin helped the Taliban also to have their uh, financial means for continuing the war in Afghanistan. And in a later stage, uh, they, they had so much heroin that they couldn't sell it, and they, therefore the Mullah Omar for, I mean, uh, declared that it was forbidden to cultivate opium in Afghanistan. But in fact, it was 
this was done because the price of heroin was coming down in the markets of Amsterdam and this is why this happened then but in fact two years ago 3,600 tons of opium was produced in Afghanistan. This is more than the half of the world's production. So, so this is how the expenses of were provided for those Taliban who were the enemy of women's education. Now, I think that I have to conclude a little. And to say that 11th of September changed everything. The United States itself found that what our side was saying to the Americans since five years was right that the Taliban are dangerous people and the Taliban also are giving harbor to Mr. Bin Laden. In between, Mr. Bin Laden, with great impunity, he established in Afghanistan camps for terrorists. These camps, in these camps, Afghans were not uh, very much accepted. These camps were full of those Arabs who were sent to Afghanistan through Pakistan with the help of ISI, Pakistani ISI, military intelligence of Pakistan. And they in Afghanistan, they had uh, a kind of Arab community. Their number is something like 4,000. And when they speak about network of Mr. Bin Laden, it is not uh, so limited. It, 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 it is a lot. And then, then they are trained, and those who are ready for suicide missions, there are some, they are the, all of them not, not all the 4,000 are suicide mission people, but those who are for suicide mission, so they are uh, sent to United States in many ways, as you have learned, and it was, and that all this is done by uh, Mr. Bin Laden. Mr. Bin Laden uh, views is not welcomed in the Islamic world because it doesn't correspond to the teaching of Islam. The teaching of Islam is against not only suicide, but against killing the innocents. And there are verses of the Holy Quran who confirm this. Anybody who is interested, they can ask me. I, I, I'll give him the Quranic reference to the verses which uh, 
completely reject the, the, the killing of the innocents. So, um, now, I mean, this is, there is, I, I hope that you will have, you will ask questions and I'll answer to it. But after the 7th of October, United States started to, I mean, to the efforts, military actions, in order to defeat Mr. Bin Laden and his network and terrorism in general and also the Taliban who were giving shelter to Mr. Bin Laden. This is how it happened. But I wanted to assure you that this battle against Bin Laden and against the Taliban did not start on the 7th of October 2001. It started five years ago in Afghanistan against both these I've mentioned, Taliban and Bin Laden. It started by our side, I mean, which is called Northern Alliance in the press, but it is the, the real name is United Front, which is uh, comprising all kind of uh, ethnic groups who are in the north and also some of the south. And this is how this war was not this war against terrorism, this war against the Taliban was not invented on the seventh uh, of October, but it was created. It was it started in Afghanistan in already in ninety six, and it was continuing, and nobody, no country, helped us. So we had our resistance. We and we, we in our contacts we said to the United States government that this may be very dangerous. This alliance of Bin Laden and Taliban, because the Taliban are giving all the possibilities in Afghanistan for the these camps to these terrorist camps and it, it may be dangerous for all the western world but so sympathy was shown towards us towards what we are saying but nobody was ready to help us today it's quite different I think this was a summary of things and I hope that you can
Thank you, Mr. Ambassador. Uh, we're going to go into question session now. We're going to begin with um, me, uh, media press availability. Eric, do you want to just say some brief words about that? And then we're going to go to student questions. I think most of you, I think you've all found uh, index cards on your seats, so you'll be just write your questions down. We're going to have ushers come around and pick them up, and then we're going to go through those and ask the ambassador those questions next. All right, so we're just going to have a media session now. Eric. Can, in the meantime, can I, while you prepare your questions, can I ask you a pointy issue, sir? Um, a published report mentioned General Abdul Rashid Dostum, who was one of the leaders of the communist troops um, and uh, changed only to the resistance of Afghanistan um, once he had the feeling that uh, the fate of the communist uh, and uh, Soviet allies was uh, sealed. And he has formed this Yumbish Emili Islami, which is now one of the most powerful paramilitary troops. And um, the reports which I have seen do not indicate that the loyalty of this uh, uh, troops is guaranteed, but it seems, at least by lessons from the past, that in a way the loyalty of uh, several military leaders has been determined by their evaluation which side would win. Parallel to these developments in Afghanistan in the late 80s, there was a development which started in 98 in Germany and is now headed um, by several Afghanis and has been brought to um, a conclusion and collaboration with the former King Sahir Shah. And so the question for me is, what would you suggest with your expertise to the international community to undertake that those military establishments and paramilitary groups and clans which are supported may not in the near future change sides, as some of them have done in the past. Thank you very much. I think uh, it's, a, it's a sound question and it allows me to add a few information to what I said earlier. <clears throat> uh, Mr. Dostum, uh, after being a, a commander of, in the communist times, he was recognized by the Mujahideen, a leader, because he uh, left the side of the communists and then later personally I also he went to perform the ritual of Hajj and became a good Muslim. This is uh, important because uh, a communist does not uh, observe the ritual of Hajj. So this, this, this is one and so he became a popular figure 
and uh, then he was he just came uh, back to fight in Afghanistan just six months ago and uh, he was happy to see that the king of Afghanistan was inviting the united front for a meeting between his advisors and the those leaders of the united front and this was done and this on the 1st of october there was an agreement between the advisors of the king and between the uh, united front uh, for the formation of a organ of 120 people, 60 of them being uh, presented by the king and 60 of them by the uh, United Front. And in the delegation of uh, United Front, one man was a delegate of Mr. Dostum. So he was there. And therefore, uh, as you see, he is very keen to be in the side of those who win. And now everybody knows who is winning. Uh, I would like to say something that I had no, no time to say uh, while I was there. This is about the fact that on the 11th of September, uh, the tragedy happened in New York, and we were witnessing. Uh, my wife was looking from the window, the falling of the Twin Towers. It was very sad. It was unbelievable. But two days earlier, something had happened in Afghanistan. Two Arabs who were, or were on a suicide mission, and they approached the great leader of Afghanistan, Ahmad Shah Massoud, who was a leader fighting the terrorists, fighting the Taliban, and fighting Osama bin Laden, and they killed him while with the suicide mission, uh, while presenting themselves as journalists. This is this happened in Afghanistan North. And then, because the plan was for the beginning of September to happen, and they knew that. The, the, the terrorists knew that Afghanistan will be the focus of military actions after this 11th of September happens. Therefore, they, on the 9th of September, they get, the terrorists were getting rid of the greater uh, military leader of Afghanistan resistance leader. All right. Uh, do we have any questions from the journalists at this point? Yes.
as I told you, well, I can, I think you will understand the question when I'll, I'll see I'll, the answer, but in, in future, everybody speaking can use this uh, <laughs> mobile uh, micro, yes. So, uh, uh, there is no doubt that you cannot run Afghanistan with uh, a, by any kind of ethnic group if, if it is one or two ethnic groups. In Afghanistan, you have, you need a broad-based and multi-ethnic government all the time. And this has been the fact in the time of monarchy and for many centuries. Uh, this is why people belonging to all the ethnic groups of Afghanistan, the major groups, they have to be part of the post-Taliban government. And this has been decided in this 1st of October uh, understanding between the advisors of the king, a former king, and the Northern Alliance says that, that I mean the spirit is that, and therefore uh, the, uh, Afghanistan will not be ruled by one ethnic group, but by the uh, multi-ethnic group will uh, constitute the, the, the main port of administration. You spoke about um, how after September 11th, the United Front began to receive where before no country would extend a hand to the United Front, that changed on September 11th. Specifically, how did that change? What kind of assistance or aid did you receive and from which countries? No great assistance was given to Afghanistan. Uh, only some kind of limited assistance came to us from Iran, especially when the Iranians had very bad experiences with the Taliban when their consular officers were killed when the Taliban came to Mazar Sharif. So uh, the, we, had, we, have, we had great sympathy of the Iranian government, and Iran provided us some kind of assistance, which is mainly maybe financial, and this which was allowing us to buy some arms, because the arms were provided by the Russian Federation. 
So Russian Federation was helping us by providing us armament against cash. This is the, the reality. I tell you the reality. So no other assistance was given to us. And especially the United States never helped us. Now I hope uh, they will help us because uh, they, there are uh, those who are negotiating in, uh, in, in Afghanistan and also in the Central Asian uh, capitals, especially in Dushanbe, which is the capital of Tajikistan, about uh, assistance of United States and uh, there, I hope that the same uh, way will continue, that we will have uh, some armaments we need badly uh, from Russian Federation and the uh, expenses may be provided by the United States. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador. We're going to go now to uh, student questions in the interests of time. Um, I've tried to sort through... The questions have been submitted by the audience to try and get every question asked. In many cases, we've had the same question asked by many, many people. So I'm going to try and uh, cover as many different points of curiosity and points of view as possible. And I, I'm sure the ambassador is going to try and uh, be, be as succinct and answer as many questions as we can in the time we have left. So uh, let me begin. Uh, this is a question. We've also had questions brought in from other uh, lecture halls where we had the simulcast. Um, First question, what role should the United States play in establishing a representative government in Afghanistan? The United States is member of a 6 plus 2. 6 plus 2 means a group of countries who are 6 means the neighbors of Afghanistan. Uh, neighbors of Afghanistan, Pakistan, uh, China, uh, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, and Iran. And plus two, two plus two means United States and Russian Federation. So the six plus two is responsible for advising the Afghans to be to form a multi-ethnic broad-based government and therefore this is the role of the United States in addition to that United States I think by direct contact with all the Afghans were Everybody remembers about the assistance, the help of the United States in the time of anti-communist battle of Afghanistan, which lasted up to 1988. Uh, 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 everybody, I mean the Afghans, they remember that and they are therefore United States is always considered as a friend of the Afghanistan, of Afghanistan and United States will be listened to. 
And therefore, United States can play a, a greater role. But, and, and there is, for the United States, a means for, which is, I mean, United States would be instrumental to the reconstruction of Afghanistan. Because this is a country completely destroyed by more than 20 years of war. And this, the, the, today, these bombings uh, don't think that it is, it's, it's a joke. It is really, it is destroying. Therefore, it would be very important for the United States to have uh, the most important share in assisting Afghanistan for its reconstruction and rehabilitation. Thank of you, course, the, Western, the, um, the European Union also uh, is ready for that, and they have already announced that they will, in that stage, they will have, be helpful to the Afghans. All right. Uh, next question, Mr. Ambassador. Um, is the United States coordinating its attacks on the Taliban with the leaders of a northern alliance? Uh, sorry? Is the United States coordinating its attacks on the Taliban with the leaders of a northern alliance? Yes, I think the leaders of, uh, uh, of the northern alliance, I mean, this is called United Front, are in close contacts with uh, American people of Pentagon and also... Uh, with uh, State Department and uh, this uh, coordination is becoming more and more important. Thank you. Um, the next question. Does the uh, United Front Government of Afghanistan support an independent Palestinian state? Uh, yes. Uh, this is, there is no doubt that uh, Afghanistan is uh, almost 100% Islamic country. And uh, the, in the, but uh, by the same time, uh, the Afghans uh, also, they, like the late Mr. Sadat, who was very popular in Afghanistan, whose memory is very popular, is, uh, believes also in the right of Israel to exist. Therefore, what is asked by the Afghanistan, like many other countries, is the implementation of the resolutions of the Security Council and of the General Assembly in the case of Palestine, and with the implementation of these resolutions, I think the time will come where not only our relations with Palestinians, the Palestinian state, will be enhanced, but also with Israel. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, I think we have time for just a couple more questions. Um, next one, can you comment on the human rights record of a Northern Alliance, in particular regard to the welfare of Afghan women? Yes. Uh, I would like to remind you that before the rule of the Taliban, uh, especially in, in Kabul before September 96, uh, all the girls' schools were open and the, uh, there were 
so many uh, women working in the government offices in Afghanistan, and many women were workers, and uh, um, therefore uh, all, everything was done in favor of the in enhancement of the rights of women, uh, because this was considered as being Islamic, like in all other Islamic countries. You go to Jordan, woman is working. Woman is, is in university, she's studying. So this is what Afghanistan was. There was co-education in the university. And this was before 96. But the Taliban, they asked all the girl students to stay home. They ordered that, and they closed the girls' school. So this is, this is happening since six years in Kabul. Also in other great cities of Afghanistan, like Herat, like Kandahar, like uh, Mazari Sharif, where women were active and girls were studying. So today, in the northeast of Afghanistan, in the city of Faizabad, which was never conquered by the Taliban, uh, there is a girls' uh, medical college, which is very I mean, prosperous because received some help from our friends abroad, and uh, it is. And the Taliban consider that them they consider that this is a blasphemy, the that the girl uh, goes to school. Uh, we have um, one more question. Um, recently, President Bush. And other members of the oh, this is a two-part question, but I'll ask the whole question. Uh, recently, President Bush and other members of the American government have stressed that this is a war on terrorism, not Islam. Is this accepted in the Islamic world? And how does the United Front plan to discipline commanders who have committed serious human rights violations and to prevent such abuses in the future? It's a bit of a compound question, but in the interests of time, we think it will get both points out. Hope so. So we have um, yes. Uh, now, uh, uh, I think, let me make it clear that, uh, the, that we, uh, on Wednesday there was a meeting of the foreign affairs of Islamic countries because the Islamic countries, they have an organization, it's called Organization of Islamic Conference, OIC. And the meeting took place in Qatar, with, in Doha, which is the capital of Qatar, in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the Gulf. And they decided in common that the, they decided in common that this, uh, what is being done against terrorism is, 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 is very important and is quite legitimate. So this was a approval of American action in Afghanistan. So this is, but still, uh, there is, there are in each Islamic country, may it be Pakistan, Indonesia, 
or Malaysia that people say, well, United States, that superpower is attacking poor Afghans who are uh, who have no means of defense, and therefore the, this is what the extremist says. And the extremists, they constitute uh, in each country a kind of uh, minority. But what is very sad that nobody has published the list of the Muslims who were killed in the Twin Towers uh, destruction. Because if this list is given, there are Pakistanis, Turks, uh, and uh, 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 Malaysians, Indonesians, who were killed, or people with Islamic names. And this is very important. I think that somebody, I, I'm launching an appeal to the press to, to work on that and to, to publish that list because it is not a war against uh, only United States. It's a war against humanity belonging and people belonging to all religions, including Islam. So Muslims are killed. This is very important. And there were Muslims killed in uh, when uh, in uh, 1988, uh, 1988 uh, when the uh, uh, four years ago, when we had the in Kenya the destruction of uh, American embassy, and that crime was committed and Muslims died but nobody published the name of the Muslims dead because this was this, this would have a great impact on the minds of the Muslim so nobody is doing a good work only President Bush says sometimes that we don't we are not fighting Islam we are not fighting against the Muslim people we are not fighting against the Afghans but I think you have to bring proof, and this proof is the numbers of hundreds of Muslims who died, who disappeared, who are absent. And the, this list was never published. I think it can be published. I'm sorry, questions were meant oh. to be what submitted in writing. So the second part of the question, Mr. Ambassador, is how you, if you would dis, uh, explain how the United Front plans to discipline uh, commanders who have committed human rights abuses in the past and to prevent such abuses in the future. As far as, as, far as the North Alliance is concerned, I do not remember anyone being engaged in human rights against the human rights. There are some... I'm sorry, we agreed that questions would be submitted yes, in writing. Go, go on. What, can, you, can you cite some person? Yes.
I'm sorry, can we keep this to a form of a question, please? The form of a question, please. This, this is not, this is not a, this does not belong to United States State Department. Does not. I know where it comes from. This is Pakistani propaganda. I assure you. And, Yes, but this is not this is not the case. And what is important is, is the decision of the Afghans, and especially the United Front, to United Front to establish in Afghanistan a democratic regime. This is the decision. And this is also a firm a resolution which has been adopted by the advisors of the former king of Afghanistan on the 1st of October 19, uh, 2001. Thank you very much, Mr. Ambassador. That uh, concludes our evening. Thank you all for coming.